National Security This Week, a weekly look at issues affecting America's security concerns, is brought to you by the Cybersecurity Summit. Check out their website at cybersecuritysummit.org for a list of their upcoming webinar series. And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday, and you joined us for this edition of National Security This Week. We get together every Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. to discuss national security. We're fortunate enough to be joined by guests from our local area, from around from Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us learn more about national security challenges and opportunities. And sometimes we even have guests who join us from around the world. But before we get started today, I just want to let our listeners know that our sponsor, the Cybersecurity Summit, is hosting a webinar on careers in the cyber field on November 29th. You can learn more at www.cybersecuritysummit.org. So a few weeks ago, we had Daniel Rice on our show. Daniel serves as Marine Corps University in the Brute Kulak Center, where he focuses on China. Dan Rice joined us to discuss the People's Liberation Army Air Force and a little bit about the People's Liberation Army Naval Aviation. Uh, This is the People's Republic of China, of course. We're going to take another deep dive today into the military forces of the People's Republic of China. We'll spend much of that time focusing on the People's Liberation Army Navy, or the PLA Navy, with a true expert on the subject. Uh, For clarity, when you hear that term, People's Liberation Army Navy, it just basically means the Chinese mainland Navy. Uh, Captain James Fennell concluded a 30-year career as a naval intelligence officer specializing in Indo-Pacific security affairs with an emphasis on China's Navy and operations. His final assignment was as Director of Intelligence and Information Operations for the U.S. Pacific Fleet. Throughout his career in the Navy, he served in an unprecedented series of afloat and ashore assignments focused on China, including as the Assistant Chief of Staff for Intelligence for the U.S. 7th Fleet, aboard the USS Blue Ridge, and with USS Kitty Hawk Aircraft Carrier Strike Group, both forward deployed in Yokosuka, Japan. Ashore, he was the U.S. Navy's China Senior Intelligence Officer at the Office of Naval Intelligence. In addition to these assignments, he was a National Security Affairs Fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University, and Jim is currently a Government Fellow with the Geneva Center for Security Policy in Switzerland. Jim Fennell is an accomplished international public speaker, prolific author of think pieces focused mostly on China, And he's been featured on a number of television news shows around the world speaking on China. Finally, Jim Fennell is also the creator and manager of the Indo-Pacific Security Forum Red Star Risen and Rising since 2005. Jim Fennell, welcome to National Security This Week. Oh, good afternoon, uh, John. It's really good to talk to you and your audience. And you're sitting over in Switzerland, so it is late afternoon for you, isn't it? <laughs> yes, it is. Sorry about that. <laughs> no, that's okay. That's all right. We have a lot to cover uh, today, Jim. Uh, you and I both served in the U.S. Navy as career intel officers. I thought I spent a great deal of time between my special operations community and human background during my career, but but my career path seems uh, pretty diverse compared to your laser focus on the People's Republic of China. Uh, can you talk a bit about your career path and why you chose so many assignments that concentrated on China? Yeah, John, uh, you know, we came into the Navy when the Soviet Union was uh, for, you know, the biggest threat to the United States. And right as the wall was coming, came down right after I came in uh, in 86. And but that was everything that we did in our Navy intelligence community. No matter where you were stationed around the world, it was the Soviet Navy that we were worried about and and tracked under the system of the Ocean Surveillance Information System. And when the wall came down and then we got involved with land wars in the Middle East, um, the Pacific kind of came a, 
an area where a lot of people didn't go and a lot of people didn't focus on. And I kind of had a career track, two, two themes in my almost 30 years was the first half was targeting officer. I did a lot of targeting work, uh, was with an air wing uh, intelligence officer doing a lot of targeting issues uh, and did that up until about 1999 when I arrived at the Pacific Fleet headquarters. And when I got there, um, there was a focus audit, a focus uh, on the Middle East, obviously, after 9-11. But there was then this focus also on what China was doing. And we were on the kind of the front row watching this. And I spent four years on the staff at PAC Fleet as a lieutenant commander and a commander. And I recognized that uh, China was the emerging uh, going to be the emerging existential threat to the United States of America. And after four years on that staff, I, you know, I basically, you know, asked to be assigned to the carrier strike group that was forward deployed out into the Western Pacific. And it was a highly sought after job, but I, I was able to get it. Uh, my knowledge of what China had been doing uh, was a little bit recognized in the Navy at that point. And so I got out there. And when I finished, I, uh, you know, I had basically six years under my belt watching the Chinese Navy from the front row. And then I got an assignment that uh, for one year at the Hoover Institution where I studied uh, China uh, at a kind of a geostrategic level under some scholars there at, at Stanford University. And then I went on to the China Senior Intelligence Officer at the Office of Naval Intelligence. And by that point, I'd been kind of the only person that had kind of that kind of long-term focus on China and uh, the Seventh Fleet, which is the kind of the next higher job in the operational food chain out in the Pacific and the Western Pacific uh, was the next assignment for a captain. And it was really the only afloat captain sea tour job for naval intelligence. Uh, and I really wanted to, to do that and uh, lobbied hard for it and got it. And I think you know, in the community, it was this idea that we were generalists, not specialists. For most of my career, we were told that. And so I was clearly making a career move that was maybe not uh, career enhancing by staying focused on the PRC. But I think the leadership of naval intelligence recognized, as well as other Navy leaders, that we were going to be facing this threat. And so I was kind of one of the first people to have these afloat assignments and ashore assignments that were so focused on China. Uh, and the, there was a tug of war inside the Pentagon over, you know, should we continue to still focus on the Middle East? What about the PRC and what's going on in Asia? And I think now I was kind of one of the first people on the cusp of saying we need to have people with career tracks that have been focused on Asia. And now that's becoming more accepted. And we now have other officers uh, on active duty in naval intelligence. I'm thinking of Tom Hendershot, for mm -hmm. instance, Admiral Hendershot, who's done a number of, of tours in Beijing, in Taipei, uh, forward in, in the Western Pacific. And so we're building up a cadre of people uh, that know this threat that we knew, we really didn't have before. And so uh, should it have come earlier? Should we've had more people? I think so. Uh, but I think we're, we, we've made that transition and we're starting to build that cadre of expertise. Yeah, that's, that, that, that is well said. Uh, so, Jim, let's go ahead and start our discussion with a big strategic question about, about China. Uh, so what, what's your take on the outcome of the recent uh, Chinese Communist Party Congress? Uh, Xi Jinping was given another, yet another term as president, sort of an unprecedented thing uh, in the modern time. So he'll be, this is his third term now. Uh, what, what else happened at that uh, party congress that sort of caught your attention? 
Well, I mean, there's the obvious one with uh, the former Paramount leader Hu Jintao being escorted out in the final uh, the final day of the conference uh, when he was apparently trying to read something uh, that uh, Xi Jinping did not want him to read, and we believe that it was a lineup of who the new standing committee, the Politburo, and the central Mil and, and the, the the central committee of the of the Chinese Communist Party who they were. And it was very clear that Hu Jintao's people uh, in the factions, they talk about the factions that divide and, and make up the Chinese Communist Party, that Hu Jintao's faction was being basically swept out of power. And Xi Jinping's uh, cadre, uh, his, you know, his toadies, if you will, were all being ushered into positions, whether they were in the standing committee of the Politburo, those seven individuals, or the larger central committee of the Chinese Communist Party, or even the Central Military Commission that Xi has spent the last decade, you know, aligning towards him, loyalty towards him. And he becomes the party, uh, much like Mao Zedong did. So I think that's probably the biggest discussion element is his firm grasp over control of the Chinese Communist Party. But I think there's another element that people don't talk about too much that some have, which is the use of language. And in that work report that Xi gave, he mentioned the word security over 91 times. Wow. Uh, when you compare that to the 2017 or the 19th Party Congress, he only used the word security 55 times. <laughs> and if you go back five years before that, uh, in 2012, uh, when Hu Jintao was given his last report, the word security was only mentioned 36 times. So in the space of a decade, the emphasis on on China's security ramped up by threefold, at least in the official reports that are given by these these what they call paramount leaders of China. And so the takeaway is for those who watch this is that, you know, economic security mentioned, uh, you know, uh, things of that nature were mentioned that you'd expect in a speech. But there was this kind of heavy, heavy emphasis on China's at threat. People are surrounding China. China's at risk. And therefore, we have to be strong militarily. We have to have strong security apparatuses in place. And we will defend our core interests, which when China says they will defend a core interest, you have to understand that can actually mean active offensive operations in the defense of their core interests. Mm -hmm. And so I think to me, that's what I took away from the speech is this emphasis on militaristic uh, language and security uh, focus uh, at a time when you have to ask yourself, who actually is militarily threatening uh, China? When you look at this balance of power in the Western Pacific, China is at the, you know, at the apex and maybe going up further of their power in their balance of power, the correlation of forces. U.S. military in the Western Pacific has basically been static for the last 40 years. You know, we've swapped out some platforms. We got rid of LA-class submarines and replaced them with Virginia-class. We got rid of P3s and got P8s. But the number of platforms is basically the same, maybe a little bit more. But we're not really outgunning the PRC compared to where we were 30 or 40 years ago. Yeah. And so China today is in a military position of strength, yet they're talking like they're you know, in a fragile position and they need to do more to defend Taiwan or uh, to defend China. And one of those is to take Taiwan. Yeah, yeah, and so yeah. I think I think that's the issue that I see is this kind of almost this paranoid 
uh, belief uh, that they're under a, a direct assault by this surrounding nations, and therefore they have to strike out even harder to have a bigger military, a stronger military, uh, and one that will be used if necessary. Yeah, that's a great point. I, I don't know if you had a chance to uh, read the latest uh, foreign affairs issue that just came out, the November-December issue, uh, but the, 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 the main article is The World According to Xi Jinping, uh, and uh, that, that article was actually penned by uh, Kevin Rudd, who is the former foreign minister and prime minister of Australia. I had no idea he was going to be as much of an expert on China as he is in this article, but one of the things he highlighted is that, uh, as you just said, Xi Jinping has really consolidated power around himself. It's it's basically all of the people who owe him uh, that are now in the key positions across the party. So he is the party. And one of the things that uh, that Rudd talks about is that uh, he has created a new ideology that sort of uh, follows what the uh, sort of the Leninist ideological uh, approach. But what he's created now for China, and this is exactly what you're saying, is that it's Marxist nationalism is essentially what he's pushing. Uh, from a Chinese perspective, which I find really <laughs> very, very interesting. Uh, any, any thoughts on that, Marxist uh, nationalism? No, I think Rudd on this point is uh, is correct. I think uh, there's there's definitely a more nationalistic tone in uh, in Xi's uh, vernacular than, than Hu Jintao had. Uh, but I've also read other scholars, and some of them, uh, there's a one, a, 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 a Mr. Charlie Parton out in the UK, former uh, diplomat, and he says, you know, that Hu Jintao really was the exception to the paramount leaders of China, and that it's not really Xi who's so unusual, that it's just that because what Deng said back in, you know, when they opened up in the 80s, their economy, they did that because they knew they were in a position of weakness militarily. Mm. And so they knew that they had to grow an economy to be able to grow the military. But all of the leaders since Mao Zedong have all been on the same path and strategic uh, playbook, if you will, in terms of their strategic end state, which is to make China, um, you know, which uh, you've heard the phrase, or maybe people haven't heard, it, it's called Tin Jia, which is all under heaven, mm. which is goes back to the ancient, um, you know, dynastic cycles of China, that the emperors of China held their power because they were the representatives of the heavens to the earth. They were the intermediary. And when they didn't do a good job, the heavens would take them out and usher somebody else new in. And I think Xi and the other leaders of uh, the Chinese Communist Party, well, they, you know, they're atheists and they don't cotton to Confucianism overtly. I think in a subliminal way to the Chinese people, the message is clear uh, that these guys are wanting to make China the center of their, of the world's universe. Uh, and, you know, if you go back to the 1860s and the transition between the, the Ming Dynasty and the Qing Dynasty, maybe at the height of China's power at that time um, in recorded history, at least globally, they controlled Asia, but they didn't have to control things in South America or, 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 or Australia or Africa. But today, if you're the Chinese Communist Party and you want to implement this Tin Jia, you're going to have to control the global economy and have global military presence around the world. And that's their goal. And, and Xi has been able, been the first guy to be able to do this. And some people criticize him and say, well, he, he should have bided his time a little bit more, kept his true intentions hidden, and maybe they would have been able to do more. Mm. Uh, we'll see about that. But right now, he's calculated 
what they call comprehensive national power, they've gone through the numbers and they've decided, and Xi has decided that it's their time now to strike. And yeah. he's doing it across a full spectrum of soft power to hard power areas from the economy, from lawfare, diplomacy, information warfare, and finally in the military arena. Yeah. Yeah, this show, we, uh, we talk about the, the tools of national power, diplomacy, the power of information, military and economic power. We, we Here in the West, we refer to that as dime. Uh, China has exactly the same thing. They just use slightly different terms to frame how they use their tools of national power. Uh, for our audience, you're listening to National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is retired U.S. Navy Captain Jim Fennell, and we're discussing China. We're sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit, and you can learn more at www.cybersecuritysummit.org. Uh, Jim, you, you probably heard me discuss our previous show with uh, with Dan Rice covering uh, PLA aviation advancements capabilities and even a little bit about their operations. I, w- I would like to tap into your deep knowledge and expertise on the PLA Navy. Uh, can you talk about the pace of advancements the PLA Navy made during the course of your career in the U.S. Navy? Maybe you could give our listeners a picture of the size of the PLA Navy today, uh, the capabilities of their Navy, and what most concerns you about their force I think that we'd all find that very enlightening. Yeah, John, um, basic numbers, you know, the U.S. Navy right now is at 297, and given some decommissionings that are scheduled by this administration, we're headed to 280 warships. China has already 350 warships, uh, and by 2030 could have, you know, closer to 500 warships and submarines. Um, When you add in the submarines, they're over 400 now. So... They're already overmatching us in terms of platforms at sea. That growth curve really started to be developed intellectually in the 95, 96 timeframe as a result of the uh, Taiwan Strait crisis uh, when the Communist Party got upset about the former uh, leader of Taiwan, Li Tongwei, who had been a Cornell graduate, going back to Cornell as the, the head of Taiwan. And that really you know, irked the the Chinese Communist Party, and they fired some ballistic missiles, four or five of them, at Taiwan, and we responded by sending our carriers there. And so there's plenty of evidence that shows that the Chinese Communist Party was, one, embarrassed, but two, determined never to be embarrassed again. And so they set about to build a Chinese Navy. And I was in Taiwan in September of 2001, literally a week after the 9-11 attacks. It was supposed to be a, a delegation. It was a large delegation normally planned annually. And because of the, the attack, it was just three of us. And the Taiwans treated us very well. And they took us around. We got to meet all the service chiefs. And we got to go to some of the, the you know, their J-2 spaces and some of the, the, the this access to things that most Americans had not seen, even in the intelligence community. And one of the things I was told back in 2001 by their deputy J-2, who's now passed on, was a rear admiral, uh, intelligence officer, one of the few that had stayed in intelligence his whole career in the Taiwan Navy. And he had said that there was a that the Chinese were going to build aircraft carriers. They were intent upon it. And I came back with that message, and there was some consternation about whether or not that was true. And I think what happened inside the Chinese Navy was they just they made there was a a, a a, a conflict, if you will, between the people that were supporting building carriers and those that said build submarines. And the submarine community in the Chinese Navy won out. And so from the starting around 2001, 2002, you saw this uptick 
and Chinese submarine force. They really put to sea a lot of uh, Song class and Yuan class. And they bought stuff from the, the, the Soviets, the Russians, the Kilo class uh, diesel boats. So they, they were investing a lot of those and also research and developing, making nuclear submarines because they had some old Han class submarines that were really noisy and not very effective. And they had one ballistic missile submarine, the Jaw, that had fired something back in like 83, one JL-1 missile. So they didn't have a submarine launch ballistic missile capability at all. Today they have over six. And we just saw a report uh, this last week uh, where Admiral Papro, the uh, PAC fleet commander, stated that hey, the Chinese, uh, they have now operationally tested a JL-3, and we believe they have J the JL-3 is operational. So this is a, a, a third generation of their ballistic missile, and it now has estimated to be over 10,000 uh, mile range, and it, or kilometers, 10,000 kilometers, and it uh, could probably, uh, has either somewhere between six and 10 uh, multiple independent reentry vehicles. So the number of seaborne ballistic missiles in the, the Chinese triad, nuclear triad, is now on its way, and they're following on with another class of, of ballistic missile submarines and fast attack submarines, the Type 096 and the Type 095, uh, respectively. But, but the submarine community built up, and then there was also concurrently some buildup in their amphibious forces. And then starting around 2010, we saw a lot of movement as they were starting to prepare their carrier force. Uh, and in 2012, the Liaoning, which was acquired from Ukraine, they acquired that earlier than 2012, going way back in 2008-9 timeframe, and they brought it in and they refurbished it and they sent it to sea. And basically, in the last 10 years, they put three carriers to sea. Uh, and the latest one, the Fujian, uh, has these electromagnetic uh, 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 aircraft launch systems. So catapults through electromagnetic like our Ford class. So they've gone from no carriers, borrowing something from Ukraine, to now they're having carriers with the same kind of launch capabilities as the United States uh, that we're still struggling with in the Ford class. So they rapidly went there. And then the other thing that they did starting in two, late 2008, early 2009, they started sending out these uh, surface action groups to the uh, uh, Gulf of Aden. And they've done 42 of these deployments every three and a half, four months, they're sending out another one. Uh, and these platforms were predominantly based on the backbone of the Luyang-3 destroyers and the uh, Junkai-2 uh, frigates. Uh, and these two platforms are the mainstay and they produced a bunch of these in the, in the dozens of them. So much so that the Chinese uh, use the phrase of the PLA is producing ships like a street vendor would produce dumplings. So they're calling <laughs> their ships dumplings and they're just pumping them out. And they've done that across the board with the Corvettes, with the, the type 056 Jiangdao uh, uh, class. They've done it across a number of surface platforms. And now over the last 10 years, they've been focusing more and more on amphibious lifts. So, They've systematically gone and built in spurts at a time on different types of platforms. They've tested out uh, whole forms and whole shapes and gotten the one that they wanted, like the Luyang 3, and they mass produced them. And, uh, and what they've done also, which is really important, is that they've 
they produce these anti-ship anti-ship cruise missiles, supersonic anti-ship cruise missiles like the YJ-18 with a 300 kilometer range, and they disperse those across all these platforms. They're containerized and they're plug in they're plug and play. So you can put a YJ-18 on a Luyang-3, on a Junkai-2, on a, a Zhongdiao. You can put it on a Hobei Type 022 fast patrol. Uh, a, a catamaran, you can put it on a, a submarine, a Song-class submarine, a Yuan-class submarine. Uh, you can put them on the PLA Navy aircraft. So they have containerized anti-ship cruise missiles, which is their primary uh, goal, which is what we call anti-access area denial strategy, the Chinese call counter-intervention. And they want to keep the United States Navy from getting in and being able to deploy munitions and forces against the PRC invasion of Taiwan. And that's really what they've done in, in, in a great way is they've outproduced the United States when it comes to anti-ship cruise missiles and the ability to conduct war at sea, something that you and I, when we joined the US Navy, that was our reason for existing. It was always our reason for existing, but we lost that with 30 years of uh, focusing in the desert. Yeah, that is, that is true. And uh, I think there's a huge disparity right now between the United States and uh, People's Republic on China, of China on the number of shipyards uh, that are actually producing uh, ships for our respective navies. Could you talk a little bit about the defense industrial base uh, disparities between the China and the United States? Right. So today, China has 19 naval shipyards, and the United States has seven. And one of the Chinese naval shipyards is at Zhongnangdao, which is at the mouth of the Yangtze near Shanghai. And that one shipyard outproduces in capacity all seven U.S. Navy shipyards, This just one of their 19. And this one shipyard, for comparison and size, is, this, is four times the size of the Newport News shipyard in Norfolk, Virginia, which most people who are involved with the Navy understand is where most of our platforms are made, at least our surface combatants and aircraft carriers. Not all of them, but a lot of them. And so uh, the Chinese have been basically outproducing the United States Navy, basically five ships to every one mm. for the last 10 years. So every year if we produce one ship in the United States Navy, they're going to produce five times as many. And they're also outproducing this in tonnage. So they're for the last five years at least they've been produce outproducing this in terms of what's going to see. So, you know, five years ago when I told people they were outproducing us, people would say, "Yeah, but they're not producing high quality ships. They're producing small little corvettes and frigates." And I said, "No, they're not. They're now producing Type 075, 45,000 ton, uh, you know, amphibious assault ships, the Heinen class." They're producing the Type 071, you know, 30,000 tons. They're producing aircraft carriers, 80,000 tons, the Fujian. They're producing these 12,000-plus ton Luyang-3 destroyers, and or those are 10,000, and they're producing 12,000-ton-plus uh, Renhai-class cruisers, the Type 055 cruiser, which has 112 vertical launch uh, system uh, tubes to launch these anti-ship cruise missiles and land attack missiles and long-range surface-to-air missiles. So they've produced uh, not just more platforms, but they're producing platforms with better weapon systems that are bigger and, and many more of them than us. And so in terms of industrial base, we are behind the power curve. We are in a desperate situation, and it's not something that can be turned on with a, a light switch. This is something that takes years to develop. Uh, made all the harder when you're in sort of a, a continuing budget resolution situation where you can't execute 
on government contracts. Uh, Jim, we have to take uh, just a brief uh, break. Uh, identify our sponsor, if you'll just hold on for a second. Sure. National Security This Week is sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit. The Cybersecurity Summit brings together cyber experts from industry, academia, and all levels of government to explore challenges, solutions, and opportunities in the cyber arena. The three-day summit includes speakers, workshops, discussions about advancing a cyber career, and keynote addresses by top leaders from across the cyber community. Learn more at cybersecuritysummit.org. And Jim, I want to continue uh, just a bit longer on our discussions on the PLA Navy. Uh, you're painting a very dire picture uh, for our listeners uh, and for me, basically. I'm even more concerned now listening listening to everything you're talking about this morning. But how, how well does the PLA Navy integrate their operations with other combat forces in the People's Liberation Army uh, writ large? Uh, and specifically, I think, uh, from a naval perspective, how well, do they, how well does the PLA Navy coordinate with the PLA Air Force and also their, uh, their rocket forces? Uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about the danger from the rocket forces. I expect those, those three arms of the People's Liberation Army, the ones that most concerned you as the N2 or the head of intelligence for both 7th Fleet and the Pacific Fleet uh, during your, uh, your tours. Yeah, John, um, I get that question a lot. And when I first started getting it, you know, 15 years ago when I was still on active duty, people would, you know, there was kind of a, a hint of skepticism, like they're really not that good. They don't talk to each other. They're disjointed. That was the assumption. Uh, but in my career, and I retired in January 2015, what I saw in the last 10 years of my career, especially the, the last from 2010 to 2015, uh, we started hearing about the... Um, informationization of warfare that the Chinese were talking about. And this is before Xi Jinping, but they were talking about operating their military forces in complex electromagnetic environments. And so we would see naval exercises up in the Bohai where you would have naval forces at sea operating and you would have naval, uh, air forces operating as well together under jamming conditions where you know the, the the spectrum of the ew electronic warfare spectrum was you know maybe whited out with noise or or some kind of repeat jammer or something like that that would try to dissuade or dis, dis confuse their naval forces being from being able to ex execute their exercise mission uh, and we saw that over and over again across the pla and and then I saw exercises, and I can't go into a lot of the details, but I saw exercises with the PLA Navy, the PLA Air Force, the PLA Rocket Forces, shore-based, all firing missiles at targets in exercise areas where they were getting, you know, coordinated attacks from multiple vectors uh, in, you know, corresponding times of attack. And I'll just leave it at that. Uh, to say that they actually have been training for this for quite a while, for probably more than a decade. And then in 2015, Xi Jinping, when he came in, he came in in 2013, late 2012, early 2013, he uh, reorganized the PLA in 2015. And he, um, well, first he got rid of 300,000 people in the PLA that weren't doing war fighting. They had a lot of deadwood people that owned stores and musicians and <laughs> drama troops and things like that. He cut all that away. 
and then what he did is he reorganized their seven military regions into five theater joint commands. We all probably remember when Joint Forces Command was in existence. And we remember the, the, the it was like, it was almost like the end of the world was going to happen. Some people said when the Secretary of Defense at the time disestablished Joint Forces Command. And that wasn't even a geographic command. That was just a functional command. Uh, and there was predictions of dire, dire things if we got rid of one functional command and in our, in our COCOM system. And so what Xi did is he just swept the board. He said, we're getting rid of all these military regions and we're going to start over with five theater commands and they're going to be joint and they're going to have joint officers leading them. So maybe a Navy guy is going to lead this area, but he's going to have an army and an Air Force guy working for him. And they're going to have joint commands with joint, uh, uh, you know, intel centers and joint operations centers. Uh, and that we've seen that been reported out uh, in the Fujian uh, province, which is right across from Taiwan. So we know that they, in a command and control sense, they've gone joint in a, from an operational sense. And then we know they've elevated and created new joint infrastructures like or commands like the Joint uh, uh, Logistics Force, which supplies logistics support to their geographic commanders, and also the Joint Strategic Support Force, which provides electronic warfare and cyber support to those geographic commanders, those five geographic commanders. Uh, and so you, and then you've seen a buildup, if you will, of the Army or, or the Navy and the Air Force and the cyber forces in relationship to the buildup to the Army. And the Army's building too and getting modernized, but these other services, the Air Force and the Navy, uh, they were more rapidly growing. And the second artillery is still, some would say, the premier force of the PLA in terms of um, the amount of attention and money that's given to them and the capabilities that they have. The ability to fire off, for instance, these anti-carrier ballistic missiles like the DF-21D, Dongfeng 21 Delta that fires you know, about 900 kilometers uh, and is looking for our aircraft carriers, or the DF-26, Dongfeng 26, which has double that range. Basically, they've got coverage out to the first island chain with the DF-21 and to the second island chain with the DF-26. And so... The second artillery, uh, which it used to be called the second artillery, the strategic rocket force, working hand in glove with the PLA Navy, which is, you know, coordinating fires from under the sea, on the sea and above the sea with naval air forces. Then you have the PLA Air Force, the regular air force that has bombing and, and, and anti-ship training and capabilities. And then you add in, you know, cyber capabilities that are designed to make it so that our ships and submarines and our commanders at sea can't see, can't hear, can't have access to our satellites. And then all of a sudden you've got, you know, supersonic cruise missiles coming in from all different vectors, from all different platforms. And then you add in the ballistic missiles. And now the latest one is the hypersonic missiles, no. which are coming at speeds over five Mach. Uh, it, it, it's really a significant challenge for our forces to operate inside this threat envelope. And that's, by design, that's what the PLA leaders, the Central Military Commission, and they didn't just start this in the last five years. This has been something that's been on their chalkboard for 20 plus years. And they've been, you know, in some ways going after it rapidly in a very rapid way, the production of these dumplings, if you will, these Navy ships and other platforms. But in another way, it's been a long period of time to put all this together and to train up the people. And then we add in you know, the civil military fusion, 
where you have this whole civilian sector, what they call people's war. So Mao Zedong, you know, quote, penned or was famous for the people's war. So you have a, a mindset that says we're the Chinese Communist Party and we control all of the people of China. And when we go to war, it's not going to just be the PLA. It's going to be the whole country. And everybody in the country has a role and a responsibility. And if we doubt the efficacy of that, then all we have to do is look at the, uh, the Chinese Communist Party's ability to control these cities. Right now, as we're speaking, Beijing is going through a, a massive lockdown. It was Shanghai earlier this year, Wuhan two, two and a half years ago, where cities of 11, 25, 20 million people are being sh shut down and controlled. And every person is being swabbed once or twice a day and not able to go out of their apartment if they don't have the right uh, check mark on the uh, their uh, medical application. So the ability for the Chinese Communist Party to mobilize uh, for a people's war to take Taiwan, I think is not well appreciated uh, by Western uh, thinkers and Western intelligence personnel. At least it wasn't until COVID. And I think more and more people are starting to wake up about this. So to add to that, uh, the control that the Chinese Communist Party has over literally everything in the People's Republic of China, could you talk a little bit about, a little more about how civilian shipping, uh, civilian shipping has, uh, could, could impact the capabilities uh, of uh, of the PLA Navy, especially as a threat, potential threat to Taiwan. Uh, I'm thinking of their roll-on, roll-off uh, carriers or Roros that they have. Uh, is that something that concerns you, the, what they could do, uh, hybridized usage of those Roros? Yes. And in fact, in this exercise that we saw, well, not ex well, it was an exercise, but this military power display that we saw on 4 to 7 August, after the Speaker Pelosi's visit to Taiwan. And there was essentially a three-day exercise with closure areas, but the exercise went on for another several days uh, where we saw this kind of what I refer to it as a Taiwan invasion dress rehearsal mm -hmm. by the PLA. And as part of that, some analysts saw these civilian roll-on, roll-off ships that are uh, were coming down from the North Fleet, the North Sea area, a Yellow Sea, a Northern Sea Fleet, coming down into uh, the East China Sea. And these ships, these roll-on, roll-off ships, uh, they've done some internal measurements, and they basically have 1.6 miles of parking space inside one civilian roll-on, roll-off ship. And it's you know, about three meters wide, about 10 feet, or yeah, 10 feet wide, enough to drive a tank, and then it, it, because of the layering of the internal configuration of these roll-on, roll-off ship, they have so much room that you could get a mile and a half of cars or tanks lined up inside there. And there were only like seven or eight of these vessels that were seen in this one demonstration. But that's a lot of, that's a lot of material to be able to move on a civilian roll-on, roll-off ship. In fact, some, this analyst, Tom Shugart, former Navy commander, some marine officer, assessed that the size of one of these uh, roll-on, roll-off ships um, was basically three times that of one of our San Antonio-class LPDs. So we had, these, these civilian ships provide the PLA a capacity uh, to bring a lot of material, a lot of soldiers, a lot of equipment, a lot of tanks. And so quite frequently you'll hear from the what I call the deniers, the people that deny there's a threat from the PLA, uh, the deniers will say, well, the, the one thing they don't have is amphibious lift, but they never <laughs> really have done this kind of analysis on the civilian infrastructure. Yeah. And we had a, we had a 
earlier this year we had during the summer when there was this concern about these visits and all this war talk, um, there was a leaked audio from the Guangdong uh, province in the south of China, which is where Hong Kong is. And it was a leaked audio of the conversation between the Guangdong provincial leaders, Communist Party leaders, and their PLA counterparts in Guangdong. And it talked about, okay, here's what your task order is, Mr. Civilian Provincial Leader. You're supposed to do this. You're supposed to, the, the PLA guys are telling this to the civilian. You are supposed to provide me this many ship drivers and this many bus drivers and this many people to do this function and this many people to do that function. And that was just one province. And if you multiply that along all the coastal provinces, you start to get a sense of the, the millions of people that can be brought to bear against Taiwan in a pretty quick order. Hmm. And it's something that, that we don't see regularly reported in like our annual report to Congress, the DOD's annual report to Congress on the PLA. It's mentioned, but it's not really systematically analyzed and included as a force multiplier in our force uh, force allocation analysis. So that leads me to uh, a, a key question for our discussion this morning, uh, Jim Finnell. You shared a slide with me uh, when we were getting ready to, to do this show. Uh, you know, it's one of the slides from the, one of the talks that you give. And that, that, that slide clearly shows something you refer to as the period of concern, this time frame between 2020 and 2030. And previous guests on this show uh, have mentioned the year 2027 as being pivotal uh, for the PLA and the Chinese Communist Party. Even U.S. Secretary of State uh, Anthony Blinken has indicated he believes China's timeline for possibly forcing a unification of Taiwan with the mainland, it may be advancing with Xi Jinping's continued leadership of the People's Republic of China, this this uh, third term that he's received. Uh, how concerned are you right now about the U.S. and China squaring off in the Western Pacific? And, and is Taiwan... The match that lights that bonfire, or is it the South China Sea? Is it something else? What do you, what do you think? Well, um, John, I've been talking about the, this, what I call the decade of concern since 2010 timeframe. I created the slide when I was at PAC Fleet with my staff in 2012. And we would give this slide. It's unclassified. It, it, it can be found in my congressional testimony or my testimony for the U.S.-China Economic Security Review Commission in 2017. And it's been published in proceedings. But the slide, basically, the thesis is, is that we know Hu Jintao and Xi Jinping ordered the PLA to have the capability to take Taiwan by 2020. That order was given by two different paramount leaders over, over a decade uh, before 2020 and said, you are ordered, PLA, to have the capability to take Taiwan. So now people have, in 2020, people... And even today, some people still deny that they have the capability. But my assessment is, is that Xi and company in the, in the Central Military Commission actually believe at their 90th anniversary of the PLA uh, in 2018 timeframe that they were actually there. And he gave a speech out of the training range in Zurihai, uh, central China, in military fatigues, where he basically admitted we're ready uh, to his own people. They said, we have the capability. Uh, that was the phrase that he used. We have the capability uh, to defend our territorial interests, which is Taiwan, is the, the main thing. And so if you go with that knowledge and understanding that 2020 was the beginning of this decade of concern, why is it a decade? Why isn't it two decades? Why isn't it, why isn't 
what, why, why did you put a decade on there? And I did that because we know that the Chinese want to celebrate the second centennial anniversary, which is the 100th anniversary of the People's Republic of China on 1 October 2049. And we know that China would prefer to use, you know, Sun Tzu's kind of win without fighting strategy, use soft power, use economic coercion, use disinformation, use uh, diplomatic pressure, use lawfare to achieve your goal, like they did at Scarborough Shoal in 2012, where they acquired territory from a treaty ally of the United States, the Republic of the Philippines, yeah. and they didn't have to fire a shot. That's what they would prefer to do. But they have planned for a military confrontation. So the question is, how long will the this Chinese Communist Party leadership continue to kick the can down the road and then say, oh, now I got to use military force because all these other measures didn't work. And my assessment was, is that they're not going to use military force like four or five years before this great rejuvenation ceremony in Beijing in 2049, because nobody would show up. And now after this war in the Ukraine and the scorn and abuse that Putin's going to get, is getting, Putin will never be invited anywhere for the rest of his life. Nope. But, but the Chinese recognize that. And so I think the Chinese have in their mind a, a different time frame, which was the time frame from Tiananmen Square in 1989 to the opening ceremony of the Beijing Olympics. That was 10, that was 19 years. And if you go back to Tiananmen, the world condemned China for what they did, the PRC and the Chinese Communist Party. They even called them barbarians, which is like a curse word to call a Chinese person or a government a barbarian. And then 19 years later, on 8 August 2008, at the opening ceremony of the Beijing Olympics, if you remember that imagery, you had the Bird's Nest Stadium in Beijing, 80,000 people. And then at the top of the stadium, you had the air-conditioned skybox with Hu Jintao, who was the leader of China, with his other eight members of then the standing committee, uh, all in their Mao suits, looking cool, calm, and collected, looking down on this 80,000 people, right? And in those 80,000 people, it was eight, it was... 98 degrees Fahrenheit, it was 98% humidity, it was hot in a humid Beijing night. And who did you see down there? You saw one guy that had his jacket off, his suit coat off, had his tie off, and he had sweat stains under his armpits. And that person was George W. Bush, the President <laughs> of the United States. And so that sends a signal to the Chinese planners. The same people that called us barbarians 19 years ago are sitting out in abhorrent conditions to watch the opening ceremony of the Beijing Olympics. And there were other world leaders there. Kevin Rudd was there. King Juan Carlos of Spain, Angela Merkel were there. And so they understand, and they already had a bias against American and Western short attention span thinking. And so they presume that if they can back up maybe 20 years before 2049, that's 2030. So somewhere around 2030, I have been for the last 10 years saying was that window, the decade of concern between 2020 and 2030. And then, as you mentioned, last year, Admiral Davidson mentioned 2027. The Taiwan defense minister in the last year, last October, mentioned 2025. Japanese, senior Japanese leaders have mentioned that Taiwan's defense is integral to Japanese defense. You had the statement from Blinken. You had the statement uh, from the CNO Gilday here. Uh, in the last month, the last few weeks, it said, hey, when I hear that uh, 2027, I actually think 2022 or 2023. So I'm now very concerned by everything that I'm seeing with the correlation of forces, 
militarily between China and Taiwan. The fact of that China is facing really important demographic challenges after 2030, uh, access to water, access to energy, access to food, uh, uh, an aging population, gender disparity between men and women, um, all kinds of things that China has problems with. And then we have our own, their own concerns about American domestic political situation and where is America going? Uh, where America is today is different. Even with President Biden in charge, we have a different outlook towards China than we had because of what happened with Trump and the people that were in the Trump administration who broke the 40-year hold of the Kissinger School of Engagement that yeah. said engage, engage, engage. Pompeo called it blind engagement. I've called it unconstrained and unaccountable engagement. <laughs> and so that 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 hold by the China hands on our foreign policy vis-a-vis -vis China has been broken. Now, is it as where it should be today? No, I think there's a lot more that we could be doing. But from China's perspective, if I'm Xi Jinping, I have to worry about, hey, what happens if another person comes in to lead the United States that's more like Donald Trump, that's younger, more, more uh, accomplished and can actually make some of these changes that we were talking about in the correlation of forces. And so that's all going into their comprehensive national power discussion inside Zhongnanhai, which is the, the leadership forum in Beijing. And they're discussing this. They're, they're, they're Rubik's cubing it. They're saying, well, if I change this over here, what does it do to diplomacy? If I touch economics, what does that do to the military? If I have an information campaign here, what does that do to my lawfare? And they, they're calculating this constantly and so I think the signals that we're hearing from everybody, whether it's people that never talked about it before, like in Taiwan, you would never have a Taiwan Minister of Defense make such a declarative statement. You would have never had, you know, a, a Navy Admiral, which I don't understand why, but just for, you know, we haven't had for 20 years, Navy Admirals really speak up about China. Uh, for whatever reason, we, that's a whole nother show, but they haven't been doing it. And so... Now to have Gilday come out and talk about it, Admiral Richards, the head of U.S. Strategic Command, who talked about in the same week as Gilday said, "Hey, we have a we have a we have a deterrence problem with China, and our deterrence ship is sinking vis-a-vis -vis China. We're we're not able to deter them uh, because we don't have the force structure to do it. So you have all these indicators that say, as you mentioned, Blinken as well, saying they've accelerated their timeline. You have all these indicators that show they're." Something's happening. Something is really happening, and it's dangerous. And I know the president was just in Bali with President Xi, and he came out and said there is no imminent threat to Taiwan. And I'd expect him to say that. You wouldn't want him to come out and say, hey, they're getting ready to attack tomorrow. Uh, but I sense that that's where we're at, and it's very close, and we are unprepared, and we don't have a, a, a NATO alliance like we do in, in, in Europe. So we're dealing bilaterally with the Japanese, with the Taiwans, with these other nations, and that's a problem. Yeah. Maybe it's time for a uh, an Indo-Pacific uh, NATO equivalent uh, to be formed, an official uh, treaty alliance. Uh, Jim, Jim Fennell, we, we only have about uh, eight minutes left in our show, unfortunately. I told you this, this show flies by. <laughs> it's incredibly how fast it goes. Uh, but I want to get into the hard part. Uh, you and I were both career intelligence officers. Uh, our job as intelligence officers is to provide our best assessment of threats, 
uh, so our policymakers and commanders can make policy or operational decisions uh, respectively. Uh, and no matter what you and I may have thought about the policies that were chosen by our political leaders, our job was to stay outside of the policy arena. Uh, but now we're old retired guys. <laughs> we have the luxury of time, distance from our intel careers, and a greater understanding of the world as we continue to stubber, study these sort of hyper-complex problems like China. Uh, so in the seven minutes or so that we have left, uh, what would you advise the U.S. administration to be doing right now to address the China challenge? Well, John, in preps for this show, I, I listed on seven, six or seven things. And I'm just going to tick them off real quickly. The first thing is I'd end the, the, the unwritten policy of strategic ambiguity. The United States has had a policy towards Taiwan that said we would stay ambiguous about who's, who's, who's in charge of China or uh, Taiwan, and, and we agree that there's one China, and we just don't know who's, who that really is in charge. Is it the mainland and the Chinese Communist Party, or is it the people in Taiwan? Uh, we need to end that, because China has ended that through their actions and their violations of agreements and policies that they said they would not change the status quo. They've changed the status quo. They've changed the correlation of forces, uh, and they're very much threatening Taiwan's existence on a daily basis, not just with military flights and ships surrounding Taiwan as they are now, but what they're doing economically, diplomatically across the board. So we need to end that policy of strategic ambiguity. And I would just note that Foreign Affairs did a survey this last week and had 55 scholars. And of the 55 scholars, only two said that they strongly agreed that we should end the policy of strategic ambiguity. And the rest were, now there were, I think there was four others that agreed, but the vast majority, and I have to say, I'm disappointed in foreign affairs, or maybe I'm not, it's I expected that they would find people that would support a thesis that's, that they believe in. Uh, but this tells you where our academics are. Second, I would uh, arm Taiwan today. Uh, Matt Pottinger, the former National Security Deputy National Security Advisor, has made some great recommendations that there are things that we've already authorized to sell to Taiwan. They've agreed to buy them. Let's cut through all the red tape and let's get those forces, those munitions out there. And uh, some of them have gone to Ukraine, but not all of them. The ones that deal with sinking ships, we could send those now. We should do that. I believe we should establish a combined forces command uh, in Taiwan. This kind of was with the first strategic ambiguity point. Just establishing a command center where U.S. military forces and Taiwan military forces can speak and operate and talk to each other in real time and real operational control with our allies like Japan uh, is something that we should do. We have a combined forces command for the last 50 years on the Korean Peninsula. It's worked pretty well. I've been there, been operating in it for most of my career. We could create something like that. People will say, but if you do that, then China will attack because it's crossing one of their red lines from the 2005 anti-secession law that the PRC passed. And I, my answer is they're going to attack anyway, so why should we not prepare ourselves? Um, we need to get the Congress to uh, authorize a massive and accelerated naval shipbuilding program. In 1940, the U.S. Congress, led then by Carl Vinson, passed, and he was a Democrat, passed the Two Ocean Navy Act, which created the Navy that beat the Imperial Japanese Navy. It yep. took three years with our industrial might at that time to get go from having four or five aircraft carriers for the first three years of the war to having 17 plus aircraft carriers. Okay, we, it, it may not help today, but we need to have a strong Navy and a strong Air Force out in that region. 
We need to decouple economically from the PRC. Every dime that we spend, every iPhone that you buy, every cloth, cloth, clothing item that you buy off the rack at Walmart, and the tag says made in China, is going into a Chinese warship or a Chinese missile that's going to turn around and kill an American soldier, sailor, or an airman. Um, we also need to harden our infrastructures. Mm. Yeah. Both bases in Guam and in Okinawa and to Tokyo and, and uh, Yokosuka, we need to harden those airfields, harden those hangars, but we also need to harden our cyber and electronic war infrastructure so that we can have assured communications when the balloon goes up. Because China, believe, believe me, they're going to attack our ability to communicate. Yeah. They're going to take us down. That's one of the lessons learned from what Putin did wrong with, with the Ukraine. He didn't silence Zelensky, and he didn't cut them off from data and information. He didn't make them go dark. The Chinese will try to do their best to do that with us. Um, I think those are the main ones right now before we run out of time. <laughs> well, Jim, this has been, uh, honestly, a, just a fantastic show. I, I really appreciate you spending an hour with us today uh, talking about uh, the People's Republic of China. Uh, your knowledge is uh, is clearly uh, on display this morning, and uh, it's obvious that uh, the study of China that you've done over the course of uh, your career in the Navy and your time since you retired uh, is paying dividends. Uh, hopefully, the the clarion call that you're uh, you're putting out on a regular basis for our political leaders and our military leaders to be prepared for a a, a China invasion of uh, of Taiwan is being listened to. Because uh, from everything you're saying, which which, honest to God, it aligns with everything that I've been hearing from other people I've had on this show and what I've been studying myself. It is a, it is a deeply concerning future that we face in this competition with China. And there is really no end point to it, right? I mean, it's a long-term strategic challenge with China until one of us comes out on top. Is that, is that a good way to frame it? Yeah, that's, that they're communists. They want to dominate <laughs> us. They want to subjugate us. And they, they're not going to stop. They're going to keep coming and coming and coming until their system collapses on itself or ours. And so it's incumbent upon us who have experienced this with the Soviets. Uh, and we were youngsters when it all fell apart for the Soviets. But we know. We know what it was like. We know what was required. And it's a whole-of-government approach. It's a whole-of-society approach, as I think Director Ray said a few years ago. I, I, I We really need to get this across to the younger generations that – they're not just going to be able to sit back and ignore this. It's going to come to them, and it's going to dramatically change their life. Yeah. Jim Fennell, currently a, a, a policy fellow, I guess, right, at the Geneva Center for Security Policy in Switzerland. Is that right? Policy Government fellow. fellow. Government fellow. There we go. Hey, listen, Jim, thank you very much for your time today. Have a fantastic Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving to you, John, and all your listeners. Really enjoyed this. Thank you. Folks, that closes this week's edition of National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining us today. Look forward to sharing time with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. Thank you for being a listener to National Security This Week. Have a truly wonderful Thanksgiving holiday, everyone. Take care. You've been listening to National Security This Week, a weekly look at issues affecting America's security concerns with host John Olson. It's brought to you by the Cybersecurity Summit. Check their website, cybersecuritysummit.org, for a listing of their upcoming webinar series.
Firehouse Liquor in Dundas has the best service and biggest selection for all your holiday beer, wine, and spirits. Firehouse Liquor would like to thank you for your business this past year and send warm holiday greetings to you. They always have all your